DJ Simulationistas, sup, with Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin, and let's roll. I just uh, wrote an interesting article about deception in simulation. Okay. So the uh, Victoria Brazel and uh, and colleagues asked me to opine about the paper that was written uh, a couple of years ago, I think, about deception, the ethics of deception in simulation. My view of it was about what a what a difficult dilemma it is. And what I wrote about was I, I, uh, I told a story, and the story dated back to when I was in middle school. And uh, being the geek that I am, I attended a summer school, an, an, an enrichment summer school for budding writers. So that was and optional. It was optional. It wasn't and from detentions. And instead of going to summer camp or doing something fun and outdoorsy, I went to school in the summer to learn to be fun. a better writer. And that's well, I fun thought to it me. was fun. Okay. Uh, it, you know, quickly became apparent that I was not going to be a writer, but uh, that's beside the point. Okay. Uh, you so have we, written many articles and books and So, um, yeah, but I was planning on being a, you know, bestseller kind of author. But anyway, uh, so you are retired, you know. That's true. <laughs> so the story was that we were studying American literature, and we went into class, and uh, this was a enrichment program. So there were th- four or five teachers. They were supposed to be the best of the best teachers, and they were all really great and inspiring. And so we were uh, having a discussion lecture about American writers, and we were interrupted over the loudspeaker from the principal of the school. And she came on the loudspeaker and said something really interesting just came over the news. And I thought, since we're, you know, uh, studying science and writing in this program that you would be interested. The uh, observatory at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology has reported they, they uh, see a new meteor in space that's never been seen before, and they're keeping an eye on it. It's uh, headed across the horizon. We may be able to see it later. And then she ended her her, her caption. We went back to talking about American literature. Then a few minutes later, she came back on and she said, "Uh, there's more information from MIT 
they actually now calculate that this meteor is uh, headed towards Earth. It's not expected to hit the Earth. It's expected to graze the atmosphere and burn up in the Earth's atmosphere, but it clearly has changed direction, which is an unusual phenomenon. And then we went back to our discussion of the literature. And then she uh, showed up in the classroom a few minutes later and said, there's new information. They've determined that the object is not a meteor. It's pointed and metallic and is headed towards Earth, and I'm calling your parents (laughs) to come and pick you up. Well, we all just fell apart and just, you know, I wanted my mother. Wait, so you totally believed it. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was the principal. And she did it so seriously, and it was set up so, you know, gradually and just like a really good simulation. I didn't even hear her say, okay, everyone, this is a simulation of The War of the Worlds, the H.G. Wells uh, uh, novel that was introduced on radio in 1938 in this very manner and caused a panic throughout the United States. Wait, did she actually uh, say that and you missed it? She said it, but it was all a blur because I was practically crying, wanting my mother to come and pick me up and thinking about the doom of the Earth being destroyed by this invasion of aliens. Afterwards, I thought it was the best educational experience I ever had. Really? And I remember it like it was yesterday. But you don't remember the blur of her saying the purpose of it. At the time, I didn't. But well, so, you know, but then I realized I had been had. It was I was deceived. Okay, I need to uh, back up here. It was a beautiful simulation. <laughs> so how how did you it, know she said that? What if she didn't say it at all? Well, she did say that. I mean, you know, as I reprocessed it, I realized, and as we talked about it, and all these wonderful teachers that I had all talked about it and what had happened in the real situation uh, when it was broadcast over the radio um, by Orson Welles. So up to that point, you Um, didn't know about that incident. Right. We were learning about... Uh, we had read, I think, War of the Worlds, or were in the process of reading War of the Worlds, and it was an introduction to this event where Orson Welles came on the radio and read the story, and it caused panic in the United right. States. It was pre-World War II. It was just before World War II. People were quite, of, quite heightened in their fears, and so this spoof that was put on the radio, even though they said during the broadcast that it was a spoof. Oh, I don't remember uh, that. A, a lot of people, yeah, there was a, they, they did say that it was a simulation. They, but they said know, it after? Words to that effect. During oh, it. Oh, I don't remember learning about that. No. But people, but people got it so deeply in their mind, some people got it so deeply in their mind that it was really happening that they panicked. And so, you know, that there's controversy as to how much panic there really was and what the aftermath of it was. But nonetheless, it was a kind of defining moment in broadcast right. and, uh, and in the use of simulation. So I and, love that your teacher did and, this to you, and I would love to hear your take on um, 
psychological safety and um, the ethics of deception. So absolutely, yeah. Uh, um, and so it's created this dilemma for me because it clearly was deception. Mm -hmm. It clearly lacked some psychological safety. Some? It, you sounded it like had, you were peeing well, your pants in, that, in the classroom. Yeah. <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, these were my trusted teachers and principal who inherently had a place in my life. I have been socialized to respect my teachers and trust my teachers and knew that they were taking care of me and I knew my parents trusted them to take care of me and they dropped me off every day and put me in these people's hands. And this was an elective program that I had volunteered for and it was, I knew on some level it was going to be on the edge. I wasn't, I don't think I realized it would be edgy, but it was going to be new stuff taught in dynamic ways that was more interactive than I had been used to in the traditional classroom. Uh -huh. and, and so I don't recall, I'm not sure if they provided any extra psychological safety on that day. I know they didn't warn us because it was a complete surprise. Mm -hmm. And the things over the loudspeaker fit into... In fact, I think they probably had been making announcements on the loudspeaker for days prior to that to get us used to the notion that the principal would come on and interrupt the class. And the teachers played along with it. In fact, they acted a little irritated that we had been interrupted and their lesson had been interrupted. So they did it beautifully. Yeah from the simulationista point of view. They, they just pulled off yeah. a perfect deception simulation. And I always thought it was a great experience. Flip forward to doing some deception-oriented simulations myself, which I've done a number of. And some of them have been given me that same feeling, mm -hmm. like... The learner really lit up and went, oh boy, you really, you really got me, you really uh, engaged me, yes, yes, you tricked me, but it was a great feeling like, like a movie that has an unexpected twist ending yeah. or a story that has a twist in it or humor, jokes always have a twist uh -huh. in it, and there's wonderful value in that. I've also done some simulations where I felt really bad mm -hmm. and I felt really creepy. Mm -hmm. And even in some of our speaking up studies, some of those deceptions that I've done, I, I, I couldn't do anymore. I felt like they were just yeah. crossing the line. Yeah. I don't think there's a simple answer to is deception good or bad. Well, I think it's a matter of well, degree. This is so there are... interesting because, you know, we talk about realism and the theory of realism and how the fiction contract is a factor of the individual. And, and there's so many times where we've run so many simulations and m the general feeling is they enjoyed it 
they enjoyed the surprise. But every once in a while, there's that one person that is like, I felt completely deceived. Right. And they even say, I lost trust right. in you on some level, sometimes literally. So, And so I guess it's, what's that about? Is that worth it? Is it worth it to use some deception, carefully controlled, for its value, not for some other alternative value, you know, just to tweak people? Is it worth it? Is it a good thing? I, um, I just... Or is it so hurtful? So I think just like the fiction contract, there's only so much you can control. I, I think I've told you about this in my textbook the only thing that, well, the most highly referenced thing was the one thing that I, that I thought, oh, I'm just going to write this up because it's interesting, which is uh, biases that you see in simulation. And perhaps there's a deception bias that the participants come in with that, you know, we as educators, we can only control so much, but how do you screen and deal with you know, deception bias, because as soon as people hear simulation, some people expect it. Just like, you know, when you hear the word feedback, as soon as they hear that word feedback, they get a negative connotation with it. And it could be with simulation, too, that as soon as they hear the word simulation or walking into the simulation center, you have this bias of deception. So what, how does that play in? So, so let's look at the flip side of not using deception. And I thought this was quite interesting. I just heard a little snippet of an interview of Sully Sullenberger, the pilot of the plane that landed on the Hudson River. And as you know, he's come to simulation at CMS and uh, was, a, was a simulation educator in aviation, is very pro-simulation. He talked to me about how wonderful simulation is. And now that he has this... Uh, this movie about him playing in the popular press, I noticed his tone about things has changed quite a bit. And this little snippet I heard was him saying, simulation, uh, the real thing is different than anything that you could simulate, and you need to learn to act you know, in a cool-headed manner uh, with the real thing. And that surprised me because I always thought that the purpose of simulation was to practice uh, how you should act when the real thing occurs. And, uh, and so I thought about that a bit, and I, the germ of truth in what I heard him say was that um, in aviation, they tell you what the simulations are going to be. Because of the pilots' union, they require that the pilots know what the, what the event is going to be before they simulate it. Is that the same, though, as, as the... Um like knowing where the simulation is going to take place versus or the objectives or they are told. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they're not told the, the details of that. Yeah, they actually are. They're told we're going to we're going to simulate engine failure. But there's I'm guessing there's uh, hundreds of types of engine failure, right? So it's like. Uh, no, they tell them, you know, what what kind it is. Flame out on takeoff. Okay. And so they're required to tell them so that that suspense and deception that we often use, we send people into a situation and we don't tell them what's going to happen. In a sense, that's deception. Mm -hmm. We know what's going to happen, but we don't tell them. 
so that they can practice dealing with the discovery and analysis and diagnosis of the problem from an unexpected point of view. And yet they come into simulation, as you say, with a simulation bias. They know something bad is going to happen, and they're looking for that. And sometimes we use that actually to do simulations that surprise them because we know what they are expecting. We let them guess what they're expecting, and we make it something different. And so we use simulation in various ways, I think with a, usually, almost always, with a very uh, sound educational uh, purpose. You know, we want them to practice things from an unknown perspective, or we want them to be able to figure out um, diagnosis A from diagnosis B that look very similar to each other and not get fixated or stuck on one diagnosis uh, when the other one is a possibility, uh, that sort of thing. And so I think deception can have very excellent purposes and be very effective. And I think some people would find never being deceived, that is, everything being handed to them on a platter, as being not useful. And I've had that, I've had people say that. The simulation day was too easy. It was too straightforward. There weren't any tricky cases. So I think we're stuck with exactly what you said. We can't control everything and everyone. We're going to get some people who will be angry that they've been deceived. And we're going to get some people who would be angry that they weren't deceived. (laughs) And we have to find an appropriate middle ground where we don't hurt people on either end of the spectrum unduly. Well, don't you think that, I wonder, how much does the actual facilitation of the case eliminate the deception? I mean, I think it's one thing to, you know, throw them into a simulation and not facilitate them through it. And something else, if, you know, you have them go into the simulation and they're not quite getting it and having a way to facilitate them through it, that's realistic still. So let's say, um, you know, they're, they're being caught off guard that it's intentionally different um, differential diagnoses in a case and meant to throw them off to make it hard to figure out what the actual case might be, and then having someone in there to kind of facilitate that Yeah, I think there are various ways to mitigate the negative consequences of deception. And so the first thing is you can be transparent about the use of deception. But I guess I wouldn't see it as deception. Well, you can tell people at the outset, uh, we're going to be doing cases for you because you're advanced practitioners. We're going to give you cases that are hard to figure out to give you practice in, you know, differentiating between like diagnoses. Or we're going to give you cases that require a lot of resources because you're here to practice managing resources. And so you can generically 
warn people that you're going to be using what you might think of as deception in a constructive way and that you have a purpose for it. And I think if you tell people we're not here just to mess with your head, uh, we're here to give you practice in some educational realm, that's less deceiving than if you just cold turkey throw them into a room and give them a tricky scenario. So, so I think that's one way to mitigate. I think handling it in a debriefing is also important. And so kind of normalizing the dilemma that, you know, this is a really difficult diagnosis, that lots of people have struggled with this or would struggle with this because of its complexity. You know, I think saying things like that in a debriefing helps with uh, with the fact that some people might have felt tricked for no reason. Did you get stuck on it? Because right now I'm stuck on the word deception. Were you stuck on that when you were writing the piece? No, because lots of things we do are deceptive. I, lots of things. And, and I think one of the things one of the things about that word is the connotation that the motivation for the yeah. you know for the trick or the unexpected yeah. is not a good one. And I think that's the trouble. That I think that if if you do tricky things or deceptive things with very good purpose and good intention and you're clear with the learner that that's why you're doing it before, during, and after, I think it's probably really beneficial to most people. Mm -hmm. And I still worry about that occasional outlier who in spite of all of those things walks away not having learned anything, having a negative feeling about simulation and about the educational experience and is reluctant to come back. I worry about mm -hmm. that. But I guess I feel like, much like that class I took in junior high school, it was so well worth it. It, it actually was one of the things that inspired me to, you know, to go into education which I've done, as I realized. And as I wrote that piece about, the, about that event, I wondered, you know, was that one of the things that got me into simulation? I was so titillated by the fact that my teachers, you know, tricked me like that, mm -hmm. that I, I loved that. And I've emulated it in so many ways over the years. I, I wonder if it wasn't just the, you know, defining inspirational moment in my, in my upbringing that, that got me here. I think for me, that deception had tremendous value. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't want to deprive a learner of that kind of value. So, James, the, the lawnmower was going outside for part of that. I'm wondering if you picked that up. <laughs> yeah, we can get that, Dan. That's no problem. Dan, bring your laptop a little closer to your shirt, please. Because your shirt looks like it's inside out.
That is inside out. <laughs> yes, it no, is. It's not. Look at your collar. <laughs> yes, it is. It's a good thing you're in yes, your closet. It is. Janice. <laughs> Janice. Yes. You are truly my friend. Only, only your friends will tell you. Although I was really tempted to do a um, a lesson of deception, and to just let you go out there and then ask you at the end of the day how your day went, and see if anybody else picked up on it. Because I think that would have been really cool. (laughs) I'm sure that no one would tell me, (laughs) because my friends here aren't that close. (laughs) <laughs> or they may have had no, you know, kind of deception bias <laughs> right. and not cared at all. You know, they might not right. have even realized and they just would have thought, how cool. He's starting a new so, trend. OK, I'm going to go with it. So that so there's an interesting story with this shirt. Uh, so, uh, you know, I played tennis in it and, and during the summer it was a hot day and I sweated a lot. And I put the shirt in a plastic bag, uh, as I always do when I left the tennis club. And I put it in the trunk of my car, and I forgot to take it out, and it sat there for a few days. And it okay. really smelled bad. And I washed it, and it still so smelled bad. It. And I washed and it, it again, <laughs> and and and... It didn't smell bad until I wore it again. And after I wore it for a few minutes, it smelled bad again. I really sure just noticed it right away. So I've tried um, bleaching them before. And the bleaching uh, yeah. bleaches the yeah. labels, you know. And, and, uh, and so I looked online if you could boil your clothes. And there were several things about boiling your clothes. So I thought, I'm going to boil all my tennis shirts because uh, it'll kill the bacteria for sure. And so I took a big pot and I filled it with water and I had one of those strainer things and I boiled my shirts for, you know, for 10 minutes or something like that. And then I threw them in the washer and washed them. They smell like the forest. I mean, they're just beautiful. No smell whatsoever. I wore them. They smell. But they were wrinkled. (laughs) And I thought, oh, I just didn't take them out of the dryer. And I washed them again and dried them again. They are permanently wrinkled, even if you iron them. So what I learned is that, that all clothes, they put sizing in it. Sizing? There's some process. Okay. It's called sizing. It's some process that keeps the fabric from wrinkling. Even, you know, it's like the the, the end game of that is the no so iron is that like, clothes. Is that like a thread they have a lot of, that helps it? No, it's a chemical. Really? It's a chemical process. And when you boil clothes, it takes the sizing out and they are forever... Wrinkling. So it's either you smell or you're wrinkled. Exactly. So all my shirts look like they've, you know, they're 100 years old because they're <laughs> all wrinkly. 
<laughs> but they don't smell. I'm glad you chose wrinkled over smell. Not only did I wash this one, boil this one, I so boiled you're just all, all wrinkled. All my all my tennis shirts from Boston are wrinkled. The ones from here that I, so that I left here. So for your 60... They, they aren't wrinkled, and they don't smell because you don't sweat here. will be giving you irons and an ironing board. Right, I, I hope so, yeah. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> this has been DJ Simulationistas. What's up? With Dan Raymer and Janice Pelaganis. Thanks so much for listening. Check back next week for another episode. See you next time. <laughs>